Uh, If you have your copy of the scriptures in your lap, you can turn to Philippians 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles uh, over on the table, which you can feel free to grab and use and take with you if you like. Uh, Again, it's so good to be with you all. Uh, Special welcome to you guys from JCF Pittman. Uh, Again, we love you. Uh, So so glad to be here with you. let me, let me read for us from our passage of Scripture this morning. Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. We read this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your message and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it uh, we have life, uh, that your word uh, refreshes our souls, that it is a a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, now glorify your son as your word is proclaimed. Lord, that your son Jesus would be lifted up in our hearts. Uh, that we would see again our need, our sin, our brokenness, our failure, but that we would see again Christ's sufficiency, that he is a perfect Savior, able to reconcile us to you, our Father, so that we have the full forgiveness of sins and the promise of life everlasting. Lord, would you do this? Would you nourish us, remind us, refresh us, renew us again in our faith for our joy in you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a unique joy that you experience when you find out someone you love is coming to visit. There's a unique joy you experience when you find out someone you love is coming to visit. Maybe it's a family member who lives far away or a friend that you haven't seen in years. Uh, Kids. Do you get excited when you find out that a friend is coming over to play with you, to visit? You get excited. There's a, there's a joy. Now, I, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but for me, I, I think about the joy and the excitement that our family felt when we would get that little text from Brian and Carol Killa with the plane tickets. We're coming back. We're coming for a visit. And the joy that would fill our hearts as we thought about spending time with the people that we love. 
There's just something special about re- being reunited to people you love. Do you, do you know that feeling? No one knows that feeling? You know that feeling, right? Okay, good. Not just me. In our passage this morning, Paul is writing to the Philippians knowing that it will be a joy for them not only to receive back Epaphroditus, but to look forward to a visit from Timothy and even Paul himself uh, once he is released from prison. Remember that it was Paul who planted the church in Philippi, and by that time in his missionary journey, he had Timothy by his side. And so both Paul and Timothy were close friends of the Philippians. And of course, Epaphroditus was a native Philippian. He was one of their own. They had chosen him, the church had chosen Epaphroditus uh, to travel to Rome when they heard that Paul was in prison and was in need of of supplies and provisions. That's how uh, house arrest worked uh, in in the ancient world, and especially in Rome. You You were detained by the state, but if you were going to survive, you had to rely on the generosity of friends and family. And so when the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison, they sent Epaphroditus along with a gift to supply him with his needs. And so now they were going to to receive Epaphroditus back. And so now Paul writes of his plans to send Timothy and to to hopefully soon visit himself. And he writes them to to receive Epaphroditus. And there is this, this joy at receiving back, at visiting with those people that they love. Now, it can be easy to pass over a passage like this. Because at, it, at sort of face value, you just read through it, it sort of just seems like an explanation of Paul's travel plans. But there, there's much more than meets the eye here. It might seem a, a strange passage to preach on a Sunday like this where we're, we're celebrating new members coming into the church and we're uh, celebrating a baptism in just a little bit. But I hope what you'll see is how timely and how helpful uh, these verses are. Because what they hold out to us is the loveliness of gospel relationships. They hold out the loveliness of gospel relationships. As Paul gives his rationale for sending these brothers to visit the church at Philippi, he he subtly assumes a paradigm. He assumes an ideal or a standard for how Christians relate to one another, and it's beautiful. It's so lovely. It's a divine paradigm for relationships that makes the body of Christ, the church, the most unique, one-of-a-kind, radiantly beautiful community on planet Earth. I wonder if, if you have experienced the loveliness of gospel relationships. The Ed Clowney, a professor at Westminster uh, he, he passed away uh, a number of years ago. He was a professor for a long time. Uh, he used to refer to the church as a new humanity. A new humanity. Because the church, of course, is made of a people who are new creations in Christ. They are the new covenant people of God. Because they have new life in Jesus, they also have a new relationship with God, a, a new relationship with sin, a new relationship with the world, and a new relationship with each other. You see, as Christians, you are a new humanity built on a new paradigm. And it's that paradigm that I want to explore with you here in this passage. So what what am I talking about? You can see it uh, here in two places. 
uh, as we think about the, the, this new paradigm and how it shapes and informs our relationships. What we learn is that your relationships to each other is built on a new principle, and your relationship to each other is shaped by a new pattern. I'm telling you this morning that there is something incredibly beautiful and lovely about gospel relationships, and it's because they're built on a new principle and shaped by a new pattern. What are they? Let me show you. First, a new principle. Paul's writing as a Christian to Christians about Christians, and he assumes a principle, a, a fundamental precept that, that governs their relationship to each other, and you actually see it uh, all throughout this passage of Scripture. You know, if you're, if you're ever wondering, how do I kind of figure out what the main meaning of this text is, a good place to start is to just look for words or phrases that get repeated. Do you know that? And one of the phrases that you see repeated here three times is this phrase, in the Lord. Do you see there in the text, in in verse 19, uh, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy. And then later on he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And then towards the end he says to the Philippians, so receive him, that's Epaphroditus, in the Lord, with all joy. So there is this principle uh, that is we relate to one another through the lens and through the, 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 the reality that we are all in the Lord. Now I want to zero in on Epaphroditus here because the, the, the main command of this scripture is Paul's call to the, to the uh, Philippians to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord. And I think if we look at him as sort of a case study, as an example, we'll get a better idea of what this, this principle is, that we relate to, one another, uh, relate to one another as those that are in the Lord. Uh, so having received uh, those gifts and, and having spent some time with Epaphroditus, Paul sends him back uh, to the Philippians. Um, and he actually sends Epaphroditus with this letter in his hand to be, to be read. And, and Paul's exhortation is this, receive him in the Lord. Now that word, receive, that phrase, receive him, it literally means to, to welcome, means to embrace, means even to, to delight in. Now, now on the one hand, uh, that sentiment was not that uncommon in Greco-Roman letters, if you were to go back and read like a, a handful of ancient letters, uh, you would probably find towards the end, uh, if, if there was a s- circumstance like this, you know, think of like a Roman official sending someone to a different province, someone uh, that he would say something like, you know, receive such and such. Receive them into the courts. Don't put them out, you know, be hospitable. Take them in, Wel- welcome them, embrace them. But Paul qualifies this sort of common phrase by saying, receive him in the Lord and with all joy, right? They aren't just to receive him. They're they're not just to embrace him. They're not just to welcome him in. They are to welcome him, welcome him in and embrace him in the Lord and with all joy. Now, Now, what does Paul mean when he says, receive him in the Lord and with all joy? What is that little qualifier? What does that little in the Lord signify? Well, in one sense, as Christians, we're supposed to do everything in the Lord, right? It's supposed to be sort of like the banner that hangs over us is that we do everything in the Lord. But, but I think we can get more specific than that. 
Here's what Paul means. He means receive him, welcome him, embrace him, delight in him the way you have been received by God in Christ Jesus. Receive him in the Lord with full joy. That is, receive him the way you have been received by God in Christ Jesus. Receive one another in the Lord with all joy. That's the principle that governs how we relate to one another. That we are to receive one another in the Lord as we ourselves have been received by God in Christ. That that God in Christ has moved out towards us, his enemies, in love to redeem us from the curse of sin by his own perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection so that we might be first and foremost reconciled to him and then consequently reconciled to one another. You see, in Christ, the founding and guiding principle of your relationship to each other is your renewed relationship with God and the reconciliation you have with him that then bends itself out in the reconciliation you have with one another. And, 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 and can't you see, you know, even in just me saying that, can't you see how this idea of being received is at the heart of what the gospel is all about and therefore at the heart of what gospel relationships are all about? There's this, um, there's this wonderful picture in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. Let let me read it to you. Uh, Ezekiel the prophet is speaking God's words to Israel in the midst of their rebellion and idolatry. And then there comes this promise. There comes this beautiful promise in Ezekiel 20. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Starting in verse 40, we read this. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land There I will accept them. It's the same word, by the way. You can translate receive, you can translate it accept, embrace, bring in. It's God saying, there I will accept them. And there I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And then jumping to verse 44, he says, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. He says, There is going to come a day when I accept you. I don't deal with you on the basis of your sins, on the basis of your evil deeds, but you are fully accepted in my sight. Do you know that is the deepest longing of your heart? Do do you know that the deepest longing of your heart is to know the full and free acceptance of God? That you would stand before him and he would look at you with just absolute delight and love in his eyes. This is the the deepest longing you have in your heart. The tragedy, of course, is that your your sin has made you an, an enemy of God. And it's separated you from him and, and it's kept you from this full and free acceptance. And so what happens is you look for that acceptance other places. You, you, you start turning to other things to find 
that accept, acceptance and find yourself uh, ever looking and finding fleeting little acceptances, but never actually f- fully satisfied, fully knowing, fully at peace because you don't have the acceptance of God. Uh, look at what sin has done to your relationships with one another. Right? So I'm talking to you about the loveliness of gospel relationships. Can we talk about the antithesis for a second? Can we talk about the other side of that coin for a second? Like what happens when you have relationships that are not built upon the gospel and the full of free acceptance that we have in God? Here's what happens, and, and I'm sure uh, you can resonate with this. You feel the impulse to compete with others around you, to constantly compare yourself to them and control their perception of you. Because you think, if I can make myself superior to others, then I'll be acceptable. If I can elevate my, then I'll, there'll be a sense of acceptance. I'll be accepted. I'll be okay. I'll be good. I'll be right. But when you try and try and try to make yourself more attractive, more successful, more wealthy, more intelligent, more whatever than other people, you find that you're, you're not satisfied. On the one hand, if you ever are able to make yourself the most of something, it doesn't actually make you compassionate and caring, does it? Right? There's an embedded desire. We compare and compete with one another in hopes that we'll find this acceptance, but when we actually get it, it doesn't make us compassionate and caring. It makes us conceited. It makes us cut others down around us to make sure we stay on top. But if, on the other hand, you don't measure up, right? if, on the other hand, you, you look around, you compete, you compare with one another, and you, and, you, and you try and try and try to find this acceptance somewhere else, but you, but you can't seem to measure up, you, you're crushed by it. And so you condemn other people around you. you. You complain about them. You curse them. And even in our best relationships, look, even in our best relationships, the relationships with the people that we would say we love, like, I, I'm hoping in your mind what's happening is you're thinking about people, you're thinking about your experience and the way that you, that you contend towards comparing, but then you, then you have this other group of people that you have relationships with that you really do love and care about. And do you know what your temptation is to do with those relationships outside of this gospel acceptance? Is your temptation is to construct an idol out of them. It's to build an idol out of them, and if, you, and if, you're, in, if you're good with them, then you know everything is okay. Right? You, make, you, you make them the measure of your acceptance. You look to them and you say, if, if, if I know I have the delight of my spouse, if I have the delight of uh, this person, this, this girlfriend, this boyfriend, my boss, whatever, whoever it is, then I know I'm acceptable. And yet you find that acceptance is, is fleeting and passing and never fully sustaining. And don't you see that all of that stems, all of that striving, all of that toiling stems from the unmet longing in your heart to be fully accepted and embraced and delighted in by God. Don't you see that your heart longs for, what it longs for most is to be received by God. To be received by him. 600 years after Ezekiel's prophecy, a man named Jesus arrives on the scene who was God in flesh. 
And, and can I show you what people said about him? In Luke 15, this is what we read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Ezekiel promises a day where God will accept and receive his people, not on the basis of their works, disregarding their, their, their evil deeds and their evil works. He will deal with them not according to their, to their evil works. And then onto the scenes come, comes Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and, and he's criticized because he receives sinners. He, he welcomes, he embraces, he takes in, he delights in sinners. I didn't say he delights in sin, but he delights to welcome and embrace sinners. And you know, if you go down a little bit further in that chapter, what you find is the parable, the prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son? Like, so it's a wonderful picture of how God receives his people in Jesus. The prodigal son, uh, the prodigal son after squandering his, inter- uh, squandering his inheritance, after saying to his father, I wish you were dead, comes to his senses, and he finally is coming back to, to plead with his father just to accept him as a servant in his household. And as soon as his father sees him, he folds his arm and waits for his son to come up and says, I told you so. Is that what it says? No. The father runs to his son and embraces him and kisses him and throws a robe over him and orders his servants to slaughter the fattened calf so they can throw a party. He receives his, his, his son back. Do you see? This is a picture of the way God receives us in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how God the Father receives you? He, look, if you have a picture of God, like what I just sort of ingest, you know, pretended the Father, uh, I told you so. Is that your picture of God when you come to him? Don't, don't you see that you have a God who receives you with fullness of joy? When, when, when Paul says, receive him, with all joy. It's not like all kinds of joy. It's not like do this kind of joy. And that kind. It's fullness of joy. Receive him with fullness of joy because you have been received by God with fullness of joy. Can, do you, can you believe that? Can you believe God knowing you, right? Knowing your week, knowing your month, knowing your year, knowing your sins, knowing your failures, knowing your shortcomings, that God looks at you and welcomes you with fullness of joy in Christ. Is that worth celebrating? Is that worth, is that worth praising God? Now, here's the question you, sh- you should all be asking. And it's the most profound question of all the scriptures. How can a holy God receive sinners? I'm telling you, God receives sinner, sinners with fullness of joy. How? How? How can he do that? 
How can a just, holy, righteous God receive sinners? Well, it's because that same man, that Jesus Christ, came into the world. And he came into the world to stand in the place of his enemies. He came in, he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Lord, but he was not received. He was rejected. And the the epitome, the climax of that rejection came at the cross. You see, Christ went to the cross for sinners and he was put out so that you could be brought in. Do you see? You see, he was cast out so you could be welcomed back. On the cross, God the Father poured out all of his just anger for your sin upon him. And he was crushed so that you could be embraced. You know, God, when you read the the, the Gospels and you read the, 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 the account of Jesus' crucifixion, what you find is that God runs toward his son but not to embrace him and kiss him. He runs towards his son in judgment. He runs towards his son with the hammer of his justice, with the fury of his wrath to crush him to pieces. Why? So that he can run towards you and embrace you and kiss you and clothe you in Christ's righteousness. Do you see? God in Christ receives you. And uh, if you're here this morning and, and, and you've not known the reception of God, I want you to know that this morning, right now, if you are hearing my voice, what you are hearing is God calling to you to be reconciled to him. What you are hearing is God with open arms holding out to you the gospel of Jesus Christ by which you might be embraced and brought in to right relationship with God. And he calls out to you this morning and says, all that is needed is that you recognize your need, that you see your need for reconciliation, that you see that you have been uh, an enemy to him, a rebel to him, and that that sin is deserving of all justice and all punishment and all wrath, but that Christ has done it for you, that he has taken your punishment, that he has taken the payment for your sin, so that if you would trust in him, you would find God to be a welcoming father who receives you with fullness of joy. If that's you this morning, would you repent? Would you put your faith in Christ? Would you hear the call of scripture to trust in Christ? And for those of you that have trust in Christ, trusted in Christ, don't you see what happens when finally you know the full and free acceptance of God? What happens when you know that God fully embraces you and delights in you in Christ? What happens is that becomes the controlling principle of all your relationships. You have God's acceptance, and so now no longer do you have to compete or compare. You don't have to cut people down. You don't have to construct idols out of them. No, you have full and free acceptance in God, and so you can move out towards brothers and sisters. Indeed, you can move out into the world with love, with self-sacrificial 
giving love. This is the, the new principle of our relationship. This is the principle uh, and the loveliness of gospel relationships, that they are built upon the fact that we have been received in Christ, that God receives us with fullness of joy. So that's the new principle. But now I want you to see how that new principle works out in, in new patterns. There's a bunch of different ways the New Testament talks about how that actually works itself out in the, in the life of a Christian. But there are uh, three here in this passage that help us understand, okay, well, what does that actually look like on the ground? What does that look like for me to receive and to be received by other brothers and sisters? Now we have this founding principle that is the gospel that is, we are received by God in Christ. How does that work itself out? How then do I relate to those people around you? This text gives us three ways. The first, and there's more than these. This is just at least these three, three that we see here in this passage. Uh, he says, uh, Paul says in the gospel, you are family. What does it mean to relate, relate to one another on the basis of this principle? It means if you are in the Lord... If this, is the, if this is the founding principle of your relationship, if you are in the Lord, you are family. Look at what he says uh, of, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Of Timothy, he says in verse 422, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. When he talks about Timothy, he thinks of him in terms of family as a son. And, and, and maybe you'll say, well, that, that's just, Paul just has a special relationship with Timothy. Uh, look what he says uh, about Epaphroditus. No doubt Timothy has a special place in Paul's heart, but then look how he talks about Epaphroditus. Chapter 4, verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, family. Here again, he thinks about his relationship with Epaphroditus in terms of family, but maybe you'll say, yeah, well, of course he does. You know, Epaphroditus came all the way to Rome and gave him this gift of course he thinks about him as, as a family, but, but look how Paul addresses all the saints in Philippi throughout the, the letter. Over and over, over again, he addresses them as brothers and sisters. Uh, chapter 1, verse cha 12. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 8. Six times he addresses the saints in Philippi as his brothers and sisters. Because they are in the Lord they are family. And we would find out if we left the, 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 the epistle, if we left his letter to the Philippians, what, what do you think we would find if we traveled into other epistles? We would find that Paul is also referring to all saints as, as brothers and, and sisters, and he's thinking about them in terms of family. You see, in the gospel, you have been made one in Christ. And because you are united to Christ, our elder brother, you are reconciled to the Father, and you by necessity have union with everyone else who has been reconciled with the Father, which makes you brothers and sisters. Do you hear the family language? You have God as a Father, and Jesus as your elder brother. Now that's an amazing reality. What does it mean? What does it mean to consider one another as family. I think it means three things. I'm going to do these three things briefly. It means you have affection for one another. It means you have affection for one another. It means you love your brothers and sisters. That's what we read earlier in our service in John 15. John, uh, Jesus and John calls us to love one another. 
And, and now listen, when I say affection, I don't, I don't mean merely just like sentiment. Now don't get me wrong. I, I do mean feeling. I mean deep abiding feeling, but it's a feeling that works itself out in action. It's, it's a feeling that works itself out in, in laying our lives down for one another. It's a, it's a warmth of reception that works itself out in, in loving acceptance and service. It's to be received by one another and to receive one another with fullness of joy. Do, do you know, I wonder if you, if you know this feeling. Do you know how like there are some people that when you visit their house, you're a guest, right? You, you walk into their home and you're a guest and you're comfortable and the conversation is pleasant and your things are good, but you are being hosted. But, but then there are other people and when you, you walk into their house, you are family. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? You know, the, the shoes get kicked off, and you open up the fridge, and you grab a drink, and you plop down on their couch, you sit down at the kitchen table, and in a minute, you're in it. You're, you're in it with your family. You're in it with your brothers. You're in it with your, your sisters. No pretense, you know, no show. You're, 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 you're relaxing, you're chilling together, and you, and you are knowing the fellowship that family has. That, that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a heart that is filled with the joy of knowing one another and the joy of being together, right? It's the joy of, now listen, I know we get tired. Yeah, I know it's, it's hard to you know, have people over, you know, whatever, but I'm talking about the kind of relationships in the church when someone calls you up or just pops over in your house and you're not like, all right, got to entertain, like get everything out. Like this is going to be, got to make sure everything's okay. But when they come over and you're and you're even you're in the midst of it, you're in the mess, you're in the taking care of kids and cooking dinner and mowing the lawn and they stop over and there's your heart lifts. Right, my brother's here, my sister is here. The family means affection. And you look, you see this all throughout uh, this this passage. Right? Look at chapter 4 verse 20. He 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 sends Timothy who has a genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. And then moving on in chapter 4, verse 26, he he talks about how Epaphroditus was longing for them and has been distressed because because of how they heard he was ill. And then then think about Paul and his affection for Epaphroditus. He says, God had mercy. So Epaphroditus is sick. He nearly dies. But then Paul says, but God had mercy on him. And he had mercy on me too because if Epaphroditus had died, I would have been plunged into depths of sorrow that I can't even imagine. Why is that? Because there's this deep affection for one another. There's this deep love and care for one another rooted in the affection and love and care that you have from God in Christ. Do you see? Why? Because you are family. Your heart is filled with affection for your brothers and sisters, and that affection is rooted and and flows from the affection God has for you in Christ. You love God, and therefore you love his people. That's the whole argument of 1 John, by the way. You love God, and therefore you love his people. So it means affection. It also means access. 
means access. It means you have access to your brothers and sisters because in Christ, you have unfettered access to God the Father. Now, look, I'm not going to make this weird. It's not like you have unfettered access to each other. You still have your own homes and your own... Pro- but, I'm say- but the point is, you don't hold one another at arm's length. You give access to other people. You give access to your brothers and sisters to you. It- Here's a helpful way to think about it. Imagine a king. Some far off distant land. A king. And wherever he goes, there are guards that surround him. And there's a very strict procedure. If you want to get to the king, there is a very strict procedure that you need to go to to get an audience with the king. And there's only a few select people that can actually do this process. Most of the king's subjects will never know coming into the presence of the king. And so imagine there the king and he's sitting at his table and there's all kinds of officials from uh, all across the land. There's some kind of uh, you know, I don't know, international gathering, and they're talking politics and, and important things, and the guards are there standing at the ready to make sure that no one comes into the king's presence that's not allowed, and then the king's son runs up. The king's son runs up, and there he is from the other side of the room. He, he lunges at his father, arms open wide. What do the guards do? The guards, like, take aim? Do they take aim ready to, like, take the son out? No. Why? Because the king's son has unfettered access to him. It doesn't matter who he's with. It's his son. If his son wants to run up and jump into his lap, the father delights to take the son into his arms. He has unfettered access. The the, the father is never going to say to the son, no, 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 son, you have to go through the process. Excuse me, you need to fill out the paperwork, see my guards, and then maybe you can come. No, he's his son. And don't you see that's what you have in Christ? Don't you see that in Christ, you have that kind of access to the Father because you have been made children of God. If that's the case, do you see then how it bends out in the way that you give access to one another? That you you don't hold one another at arm's length. You You don't keep each other on the periphery, but you give access. You open up yourself to other people. That's what family does. When you're a family... You give access to one another. So it means, it means access. It also means accountability. right? Family means affection. It means access. It also means accountability. It means there's a recognition that you belong to one another. Right? The sense in which you belong to one another. Right? This is part of the reason we're do, we did what we did when we brought these new members up. And the reason they uh, go through a membership class and we talk through the membership covenant and you formally recognize them as members is because they, in becoming members, are taking responsibility for the fact that they now uh, belong, that they uh, are taking responsibility for exercising a watchful and affectionate care and that you, the body, are doing the same thing. You're saying to one another, in Christ, in the Lord, we belong to one another. We belong to one another, and therefore, we're going to walk alongside one another. And, and when there's real celebration and joy, we celebrate with one another. And when there's real sorrow and sadness, and you're just absolutely in the valley of the shadow of death, and you're, you're just down in the mire of it, then the, the body is down there with you. And when you're ensnared in sin, the body comes along to, to bring correction, to, to help you fight against your sin. Why? Because you belong to one another. Because family means affection, and it means access, and it means accountability. Now, there's certainly more that we could say, but I want to keep going. 
the gospel, in the gospel, your family, but in the gospel, you are also fellow workers. You see how Paul strings this sort of uh, line of descriptions together in Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Uh, You are family, but you are also fellow workers. Look again at verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. In the gospel, you have not only been made brothers and sisters, but you have all been employed in the service of Jesus Christ for the advance of his gospel. And, And you know what's interesting is when Paul speaks Uh, of Timothy as his son, you might expect him to say, if you're looking there, look in verse 22, you might expect Paul to say, and Timothy served me in the gospel, right? Because there's this father-son dynamic. He served me in the gospel, but that's not what he says. He says, Timothy served with me in the gospel. Why is that? They're fellow workers. Do you see what happens? This new governing principle, it makes you family. It also makes you fellow workers, fellow laborers in the gospel. And so it is with us. We are fellow workers in the gospel. And think, think again what we read in John 15, right? What, what does Jesus say? He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what the master is doing, but, but I call you friends and I have made known to you all that the father is doing. And I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, right? In the gospel, in Christ, you have been commissioned. You have been made ambassadors for Christ together, Right? When Paul writes that you are ambassadors for Christ, he, he's, he's talking about collectively, you all are ambassadors for Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus came to his disciples and said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in John 13, 35, he says to his disciples that the world will know they are followers of Christ by the way that they love one another. And, and you know, the reason I bring this up, and I think I've shared this with, with you before, the reason I bring this up is because I have found it to be a universal truth that relationships, that gospel relationships are substantially deepened and matured when they don't exist for the relationship itself, but for something greater. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is why when C.S. Lewis talked about friendship, he said that the, the healthiest, best, most enriching friendships are not when two people come together and just stare at each other. It's not when two people come together and just say, wow, you're so amazing, you're so amazing. Wow, that you... That's, well, It's when two people come side by side and they say, you too? And they face the same direction, looking at the same thing, glorifying the same thing, and running in the same direction. Those are are the, the healthiest, most maturing, most enriching kinds of friendships. And so it is in the church that when we are come, that we come together as family, when we are bound up together in Christ, we are made fellow workers, not individual workers, but fellow workers, arm in arm for the cause of the gospel. And it's a glorious work, isn't it? A glorious work to be privileged, to be given the, 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 the responsibility, the, 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 the task as a people, as God's people, to proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim the gospel until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, and to do it arm in arm with brothers and sisters. In the gospel, you are family but you are fellow workers and you are also fellow soldiers. And I'll finish here. There in verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Now, we don't talk like that about the church that much, like in terms of soldiers and, and, and military, but, but we should. Uh, the Puritans wrote about the church in those, time, in those terms all the time. 
uh, one Puritan named William Ames defined the church. So he, he, think about it. This is how he's defining the church. What is the church? Here's what it is. It's a company of believers, a company of those who are in Christ, a company of those that have communion with Christ. Now that word company, see, here's what's interesting. In the 21st century, when you hear the word company, you think business. But in the 17th century, in the 16th century, when you heard the word company, you thought military, you thought battalion, you thought squadron, you thought army unit. And he says, the church is a company of saints. He calls Timothy, of course, to share in suffering as a good soldier in Jesus. He calls the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. We ought to think about the church in these terms. Now, why is Paul regularly using military language? And why is he uh, just sort of easily describing Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier? Because he knows that the Christian life is war. He knows that the Christian life is war. It's a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil, right? Our lives are battles against darkness, the darkness we see in the world and against the darkness that we see in our own hearts. And, and when we begin to relate to each other, again, around this principle, that is, we are in the Lord, we begin to relate to each other in, in these terms of the, the battle that we are all fighting as fellow soldiers. And a couple things come, come into stark relief. Number one, you realize that you need your brothers and sisters. right? When you, when you realize that you have been made not only family and fellow workers, but fellow soldiers, and you realize that you're in a war, all of a sudden you realize the church is not an option. Right? The church is not a luxury. The church is an absolute necessity. I need my brothers and sisters because I'm in a war. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm, in, I'm in a fight. Like, like go, go try and fight a war by yourself. Like, it's just not how God made it. Like, God has designed us to need one another. And so you have to learn to rely on one another, to look out for one another. Look, you have to learn to sleep back to back in the desert of your sin. You ever see how soldiers do that? You know, they're out in the field, sun goes down, they sleep back to back, looking out for each other. You have to learn as Christians to sleep back to back in the desert of your sin, to lift each other up when you feel like you can't keep going, and to be willing to fight for one another. It means there will be real trials and hardships and setbacks and, and the church is one of the main means of God's grace. These gospel relationships, these lovely, beautiful, enriching, Christ-exalting, Christ-pointing relationships are one of the main means of God's grace to help you weather those difficulties. Everyone gets battered and bruised in the throes of spiritual warfare, and you will need your brothers and sisters to clean out your wounds and to bandage you up and put you back on your feet. The Puritans also love to talk about the church as a hospital, by the way. I think there's probably a connection there. And this reality that we are fellow soldiers also helps us re remember that there is a day coming when the war will be over. Amen? There's a day coming when the war will be over. Ours is a march of victory and of hope. Right? We... we we live in the, in the wake of a defeated enemy. A sin and death and hell 
and our enemy have been defeated, and yet there are these minor skirmishes that still must take place. So ours is a, a march of victory that we relate to one another as fellow soldiers reminds us again that we are in a war, but that war will not go on forever. That there will come a day when that war is completely over and we will know freedom from the power, not only the power and penalty of sin, but freedom from the presence of sin. We're going to come to a, a baptism now here in a moment. And uh, as you think on Jack's baptism and as you watch Jack get baptized, uh, the, the call this morning is to receive him in the Lord, to receive these new members in the Lord. And as you think about your own baptism, as you think about your, your own uh, conversion to Christ, your own coming to faith, as you think about what God has done so that you now are in the Lord, the call is to receive one another in, in the Lord, to receive one another the way you have been received in Christ. The call is to, to live out and to be what you are. To live as, as family. To live as fellow workers. To live as fellow soldiers built upon. We can't lose this. Built upon this foundational principle that your heavenly Father in Christ receives you with fullness of joy because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That you are received with fullness of joy. So receive one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word, and, and I pray it was uh, fruitful and of benefit to these brothers and sisters. I pray that you would uh, encourage them and, and help them by your spirit uh, to live out the, the, the loveliness of gospel relationships that we see here in this passage. Lord, help us to live as family with you as our father, Jesus our elder brother, and one another as brothers and sisters. Help us to live as fellow workers, as fellow soldiers for the sake of the gospel in the world, relying upon one another and collectively relying on you. Lord, would you glorify yourself in our midst? We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.